All right, good morning, church. So glad to be able to continue through this series. Hey, and here's the thing. I know this is going to be different for some of you, uh, but let's be honest. How many of you watch me on the screen anyway when I'm live in person, right? Absolutely. There's probably a lot of us who watch me on the screen. And if you're a first-time visitor, I'm typically here live in person. We've been preaching through a sermon series Uh, But before I get to it, let me give a shout out to all of the Los Angeles Rams fan. They came through and they won in an awesome, awesome fashion. Uh, Before I begin, let me read to you this text that we're going to go over today. It's powerful, it's profound, and it's life-changing. You may have heard this verse before, and I want to unpack this this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for this truth. It is your truth, and it is your promise. And God, I know sometimes that is hard to fathom that. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And Lord, help us in this room today to trust the truth of that passage, that text. Help us to trust you in all things. Help us to trust that you are a God who is sovereign. Help us to trust that you are a God who is powerful. Help us to trust that you are a God that is for us. Help us to trust that you are a protector. Help us to trust that you hear our prayers and you see us and you love us. May this word penetrate our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, trust was broken early on. Trust is a hard thing. For example, you may hear that scripture, if God is for us, who can be against us? And let's just be honest, that's a hard passage to believe sometimes. It's hard to believe because We ask the question, if God is for us, then why did this happen to us? And sometimes there can be a trust that we have for God where in our lives this trust is strong. And we are walking with him every moment and every day and we trust him for all things. Then there are seasons where we can be honest. I don't know if you ever said this to God. I have. God, if I'm being honest, I don't trust you. I don't trust that you're going to get my back. I don't trust that you're going to protect me. I don't trust that you are in control right now. Maybe it's my humanity. I don't know what it is, but if I'm being honest, that trust is sometimes challenging. I don't always trust he's going to forgive me. I don't always trust that he washes my sins away. You know, this didn't start with me. It started in the garden. As we've been talking about um, Romans 8 and the restoration and God repurposing things that have been broken and stolen by the enemy and how he repurposes it. One of the things that we have to take a look at is trust. I want you to think about something. Um, When the garden was pure and perfect and sin entered, 
uh, not only did it mess with our minds with pure love, with pure joy and pure purpose, but trust was broken. And you ask, how was trust broken in the garden? Well, let's think about this for a minute. Uh, Trust was broken in several ways. Uh, Number one, when Adam and Eve sinned, I want you to think about the serpent came in, tempted them to sin, which then uh, it's as if Eve shifted her loyalty and trust to what she knew God said to begin to question. Could she trust what he said? She shifted her loyalty, began to trust the enemy in what he said. She then sinned, and watch what happens. She hid. Adam and Eve hid. Why in the world did they hide? Well, when they sinned, their eyes were opened up, and all of a sudden, fear came in. Fear of what? Well, they didn't trust that God was not going to punish them. They didn't trust that God was still going to love them. We don't exactly know what was going through their head, but their actions speak for themselves, that for some reason they did not trust that God was going to love them after they have failed. So what did they do? They ran and they hid. And, and if we're being honest, um, I think we can understand that. If, if you have ever struggled with any kind of sin in your life, uh, if you have ever, ever wrestled with this deep, dark sin that nobody knows about, or maybe people do know about it, you have probably wondered, how will God love me after I have failed like this? How can God use me? And you question God's love for you. Why do you question God's love for you? Well, it's because we don't always trust that God will love us when we are at our worst. Think about that. We do not always trust that God will love us when we are at our worst. Why do we think that way? Why do we feel that way? Well, there's a good chance that you have experienced moments in your life when people have come in and you have let them see who you really are and they have taken advantage of that and they have hurt you and trust has been broken. You've been in a relationship, maybe a dating relationship, where you thought this person loved you, you thought you loved them, and something happened to where the relationship was broken, and now your trust kind of is is more and more shallow. Now you're afraid to let people to come in, and now you don't really trust authority, and now you don't trust people who come around you. And I think we can all understand what it means not to trust well. For example, if you take a look at your life, um, and if And if you're here in this room today and you're sitting here trying to wonder what church is about, um, uh, probably most of us in this room don't always trust people's intention, right? We don't always trust people's intention. Why do they say that? Or what do they mean by that? Or why do they do this nice uh, act of kindness? Is there a motive behind it? We don't trust people's intentions. Uh, We don't always trust that people say what they mean and they mean what they say. We don't always trust that people will have our backs when we're not in the room, right? We don't always trust that someone's going to come protect us when we're hurting. We don't always trust that people won't turn on us. We don't always trust that people won't slander us. We don't trust very well. And we don't trust very well because we have learned that people will hurt you and they will let you down. And so we are just waiting for the next person to hurt us. And so therefore, we have a great deal of mistrust. In our world today, things aren't where they appear to be. 
everything seems to be a facade. Things seem to be edited and covered up and put a bunch of makeup on it to cover up the realness of something. We exaggerate stories and make it sound better than they actually are because we don't trust that the real story is sufficient to be accepted in love. We exaggerate our resume in life because we don't trust that the resume we really have is enough to be accepted and loved. When you meet someone that you're interested in and you want to date, you don't trust that they fully know who you are the first date, that they're going to want to stay with you. There's all this stuff that we have and we just don't trust. Studies prove that. Studies prove, Barna Research in 2015 took a study to figure out how many Americans are going to church. And they found out one out of four Americans are going to church. Others have stopped because they've recognized um, that they cannot trust the church. So now you have people who have stopped going to church because they cannot trust the church anymore. One in four Americans have stopped going to church because they cannot trust the church anymore. Then there's another research in, in 2000 from Edelman Trust Barometer. They, they took a study to figure out um, where Americans' trust was for those in authority. Over seven years, they went back and looked and found out that this trust has decreased by 50%. I think it's very clear that we have a challenging time trusting each other, trusting people in authority, and let's be even more honest and transparent. We have a tough time trusting scriptures like this. If God is for us, who can be against us? How can we trust that? When you have been hurt by people, how can you trust that? When you have been betrayed, I mean, have you ever sat and like, where were you on that one, God? Like, I, I thought you're for me. I thought if you're for me, who can be against me? Because it sure does feel like you haven't been around lately because there's a lot of pain here. Uh, but here's what I've recognized in my life, that the presence of pain is not the absence of God. The presence of pain is not the absence of God. So if we're going to really sit on this verse as an anchor of trust, let's begin to peel back the layers of our life and to begin to be honest and transparent. What do you not trust God with? Let's, let, let's sit there for a minute. Let's be honest. Do you trust God with your past? Do you trust God with your past? Do you trust that everything that's happened in the past is bad and ugly as it is? Do you trust him with that? Do you trust that even he can use that or he, that he was there? Do you, do you trust him with your present circumstances? Where you are today, everything in your life, everything that you have handed to you, do you trust him? Do you trust him with your future? Do you trust him with, with whether or not he has a spouse for you? Do you trust him with your finances? Do you trust him with your children? Do you really trust him? I want to break apart this text today. Because I want it to expose where we are not trusting him, and I want to, it to expose why we can trust him. In this passage, uh, Paul begins to shift. Paul does a great shift, and he asks several rhetorical questions. In verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things. If God is for us, who can be 
against us. This is a powerful, punching statement. What then can we say to these things? Paul in verse 31 is anchoring this verse of power to the previous 30 verses. So in order for this one verse to have a lot of power, in order for this one verse to really bring its full strength into fruition, that we can hold it as an anchor for the verses that are about to come, we have to be reminded about what Paul has said about these things. What is Paul talking about when he says these things? Well, let me recap the 30 verses prior to this. He starts off in Romans 8 by saying that anyone in Christ, there is now no condemnation, meaning you are free from the things that you have done in the past, from the things you are doing in the present, from the things you would do in the future. You are free, free, free indeed that these things can no longer come up in God's court because of what Jesus has done. As if that wasn't enough, he then says, the spirit of life has set you free. You are no longer a slave to your sin. You are not bonded to it. You are free. Be free. Live in freedom. If that wasn't enough, he then says this, that you now have a life of peace. That is awesome. You are now can walk in peace. Then he says the spirit of God dwells in you, that God placed his spirit to dwell in us and we are broken sinners, why in the world would he want to give his spirit to dwell in us? What a great gift, a deposit of the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is unbelievable. Then he continues, he calls us sons of God. Now we are family, we are sons of God. He says we have the spirit of adoption. He then says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. He calls us children of God. He says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He says that the, the present sufferings don't compare to the future glory. He then says that we have the first fruit of the Spirit. He says we will have the redemption of our body. He then tells us the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He says the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He then says in verse 28 that all things will work together for good. In verse 29, he says that God foreknew, and then he predestined those he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. And as if that wasn't enough, he then says, those I predestined, I have called, and those I have called, I have justified, and those I have justified, I have glorified. So when you take all of this and you think, my goodness, there is so much there that he has freed us from our sin, that he has put the Holy Spirit in us, that we have the spirit of adoption, that we can live a life of peace, that our present suffering does not compare to the future glory, that when we suffer and don't know what to pray, the spirit intercedes and prays on our behalf. Then he will use our all suffering for our good and for his glory. Then we can have confidence that it's going to happen because he has predestined that we will be conformed to the image of his son. At this point, they're probably thinking, wow, this is unbelievable. So then Paul says, according to all these things, I want you to think about these things I just quoted to you. According to these things, according to the predest 
predestined to be conformed according to the no condemnation, according to the spirit of adoption, according to the life of spirit and peace, according to the spirit dwelling in you, according to these things, these powerful things. If that is true, then if God is for us and we know he is because the 30 verses prior told us why he is, then he says this, then who can be against us? But it gets much better. Paul has made this point over and over and over. What is the evidence that God is actually for us? Let's speak to this for just a minute. If God is for us, is God for us? This is the key question. Is God for us? Now, I just went through quickly different phrases from the 30 verses to prove that he is. But if that wasn't enough, Paul has stated it in other areas. Romans 5, 8, here's what he says. But God shows his love. God showed his love. This is an action word that God showed it. He did something to give evidence of his love. So what is the evidence of God's love? What's the evidence that God is for us? Here is the evidence. But God shows his love. God gave us evidence in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the evidence that God is for us? Here is the evidence that while you were at your worst, while you were in the middle of deep sin, that God gave us his best for your worst. That God gave us his best when you were in the middle of your worst. That while you were still a sinner, that that didn't cause God to run from you. That that caused God to give his son for you. God did not run from you, but God gave his son for you. Big difference there. Is God for us? It sure does sound like it. And then a passage I absolutely love. What is the evidence that God is for us? Ephesians chapter 2. And when you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This does not mean that you were kind of a good person. It does not mean that um, you were 99% a sinner and 1% a good person. It does not mean that you were 50-50. It means that spiritually you were dead. There's no pulse in you. That we were just kind of walking around with when we were dead inside. And, and while we had nothing to offer God, absolutely nothing. And when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following in the course of this world, meaning you were not following Christ. You were not submitting to the things of God. You were submitting to the culture. You weren't submitting to Christ. The culture was leading you. And if the culture was leading you, it means Satan was leading you, the prince of this world. So while you were dead in your trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience are those that are dead in their trespasses, those that are not following Christ. So if you're in this room today, a hard truth if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, according to this passage, you are dead in your trespasses, meaning you are spiritually dead and you are following the prince of power in the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what he's saying these first three verses is saying, hey, Christians, I want you to remember that you were dead spiritually. If you want evidence that God loves you, you had nothing to offer God but sin. You had nothing good in you. It was all God's doing. You were dead, no pulse spiritually. But while you were dead in your trespasses, I saw that you were chasing the things of the world. I saw that you were a child of disobedience. I saw that by nature you were children of wrath like everybody else. Then I love this, that although God saw us not pursuing him, pursuing our flesh, pursuing our mind, pursuing our desire. He saw us this way. We had nothing to offer him. Verse 4, I love this, but God, but God. So let me pause here for a minute. So in this room today, if you feel like, man, my life is not good. I'm embarrassed by the way I am living. I'm embarrassed by what I have done. I shouldn't even be in this room today. I don't know how God can love me. I don't fit with the rest of the people in here. Let me tell you something. The only difference between me and you is verse 3 and verse 4. That is it. And I want to encourage you today, you can walk out of here claiming verse 4. I want you to know that in the middle of your darkest, deepest secret sin, verse 4 can be a reality for you. That you can leave here after service saying, you know what? I was a child of wrath. I was living in disobedience. I was doing my own thing without God. But praise God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy, it means that we don't serve a broke God who doesn't have enough mercy to go around, but we serve a rich God of mercy who has plenty to go around for those that need mercy. So if you're in this room today and you need mercy, praise God, you have come to the perfect creator who is rich in mercy and he can give it to all who are in need. Praise God. Now listen. But God, being rich in mercy, why would you do this for us, God? Why in the world would you want me a broken sinner? I'm glad we asked this question because Paul answers. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Why? Because he loved you. What did you do? Nothing. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. In verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Whew. That's good love. What did you do? Nothing. What are you going to do to keep it? Nothing. All him who is rich in mercy. Have you ever received a gift from somebody? And just out of the blue, like you didn't do anything. You didn't self-promote. You didn't drop hints because you wanted something. I'm talking about a true gift. A gift that just came out of the blue. You know, there are sometimes as humans, we, we want things and we drop hints, right? Like to my spouse, to Clancy, if I want something, I'm going to drop a hint every once in a while. Like, hello, pick up on the hint, you know. But, but then there are times in our lives where... It just happened. 
it just happened and you're blown away because you're like i didn't i didn't do anything to deserve this like man I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by your love this is crazy many of you probably know by now uh, that i'm a shooty i love collecting shoes i get most of my shoes as i told you from last chance so i don't know i spend the average of 25 dollars on each pair of shoe i don't waste a lot of money i don't spend a lot of money and, but I love collecting shoes. I love collecting Jordans. When I buy Jordans, I'll usually go to offer up and get them used. Um, but, but I love them. I've, I've been like this for quite some time. Uh, I give shoes away to people. I, I'm just a real shooty. Um, don't know if I'd go as far as calling me a sneakerhead, but I love shoes. The other day, um, out of the blue, I, I didn't promote this or, or say it from the stage so someone can give me something. This was out of the blue. Someone um, gave me a gift, and I want you to see. Somebody gave me a gift, and they said, hey, pastor, I know you love shoes, and I want to do something for you. So here's what I've done. I bought you a pair of Jordans. I'm like, wait, what? I said, yeah, I bought you a pair of Jordans. They're called the Jordan Six Rings. Now, if you're not a sneakerhead or a shoehead like I am, Jordan 6 rings, which are incredible shoes, didn't know they existed up until this point. These shoes are made up of Jordan's six championship shoes. So they took the shoes that Jordan wore for six different championships and put them all together to make one shoe. So this shoe represents the different six shoes in one. I didn't know this was a thing. And so this guy gives them to me, and he explains it, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm blown away. I'm, I'm blown away that he would take the time to want to bless me. And I just, I just thought, why, why would you do this? I mean, these aren't cheap. I'm used to $25 shoes, but... Why would you do this for me? And I couldn't comprehend it. I, I couldn't, I was overwhelmed. And I just, at first front, as a pastor, it's hard for me to take things sometimes because I, I just, I just want to pour into the church and I want to love on you and I want to preach to you. And so it can get kind of awkward. Not that I'm not grateful, but I didn't know how to receive it. I said, I was like, hey, I can't, I can't, ta I can't take this. Are you kidding me? No, this, these aren't cheap. And he just said, I just, I just want to say thank you. I was like, what do you mean? You don't want anything? You don't want money for them? He's like, no. Like, what do you, I mean, do you, can I buy you something? Like, no. Well, do I need, do you want me to take you out to lunch? You me, no. You want my cell phone number? No. You want my house ad address? No. Like, what do you want? He's like, I don't want anything. Just want you to know I love you. Thanks for being my pastor. Thanks for being my friend. I'm like, whoa. Whoa. And, and, and I know, I know this is silly. I know it's a pair of shoe, and I'm not advertising for the church to buy me a pair of shoes. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm sharing a story of a random act of kindness, man, that I did nothing to deserve. I didn't promote. I didn't ask. I didn't drop a hint. And I was so overwhelmed. I still am. Several days later, I'm just overwhelmed. Why would you love me this way? I don't have anything to offer you. It's so small, I know it's a pair of shoes. But I think it gives us some insight because you've experienced that. 
you've experienced someone randomly giving you an act of kindness, and you're like, why did you do that? I, how, do I, how do I say thank you? This is exactly, to some degree, what Paul is saying. What did I do, Jesus? Nothing. What do you want from me? You. What, what, do I got to pay you back? Just love me and follow me. Yeah, but, but, but I, I, I can't afford this. I know, I paid for it. You sure I, didn't, I don't need to do anything? No, I love you. I just want to show you I love you. This is what Jesus is doing. Saying, humanity, you have nothing to offer me. I'm the creator. I've created it all. It's all mine. You have nothing to offer me. But just like these shoes were evidence of somebody's love for me as their pastor, even more so and more powerfully, God's son is evidence of his love for humanity. And why God will love us this way, I don't know. Why God would want us, I don't know. But there is evidence that he is for us. Plenty of evidence. And he proves this. How do we know? Verse 32 is evidence. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. What is that evidence? That he gave us his son. Gave us his son for us to prove that he loves us. So then Paul's like, look, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Basically, let me put this in modern terms. Paul is saying, why are you tripping? Why are you tripping? Why are you tripping? Like God gave you his son. Do you not think he can do anything else? Do you not think that God can be for you and protect you and be your provider? Stop tripping. Like if God can do this, God fulfilled your greatest need. Think about that. God fulfilled your greatest need. What is your greatest need? That you were dead in your trespasses. And that he sent his son to give you life, your greatest need. So why could he not do anything else graciously? And then I love this. He asked the question, who can be against us? You know what I recognize this means? It doesn't mean that as Christians that we are exempt from pain. But it does mean that the pain we experience will not prevail over the purposes of God. That the pain we experience will not prevail over the purposes of God. So does it mean that people will not come against us? No. Does it mean that the enemy won't come against us? No. Does it mean that we won't be hurt by people? No. Does it mean that we won't have persecution? No. Does it mean that you won't experience the greatest pain in your life at times? No. But here's what it does mean. It means that when pain enters your life, that when you are hurt by people, that when the enemy shoots those arrows your way, that nothing that anybody, including the enemy, brings your way as a child of God will prevail. No pain will prevail over the purposes of God. How do we know that's true? How do we know this isn't eisegesis? Here's how we know. Because we just read the verses prior that God said he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And that we are predestined to be glorified with him. Which means nothing and nobody can change our destination. And that is to be glorified with our father in heaven. That's how we know that the pain we experience will not prevail over the purposes of God. Praise God. 
Praise God. So all that pain you experience from people, listen. People will hurt you and they will slander you. And they will betray you. And this is just the human heart. The human heart is so unpredictable. And those closest to you can hurt you the deepest. And sometimes you get in a state of mind where you don't know what's going on. And your trust is broken. You don't trust anybody. You don't even trust God. But let me just give you this hope and this confidence. Feeble man. The, the man, the opinion of a feeble man cannot thwart the plans of a powerful creator. The opinion of a feeble man cannot change and thwart the plans of a powerful creator. Let them say what they want to say. Let them do what they want to do. You hold on to your creator, and I promise you that he will even use that pain to bring himself glory. They cannot thwart the plans of God. What people say about you cannot change what God has planned for you. What people say about you cannot change what God has planned for you. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He will do what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, and he will use whomever he wants to use and doesn't need anybody else's permission. So when this text says, who can be against us, it doesn't mean that we won't have opposition. Oh, no, no, no. It doesn't mean that people won't, be, um, won't come against you, won't bring pain to you. That's not what it means. It may mean that you won't be the most popular in the room. You understand that? It may mean that you won't be the most popular person in the room at times. But it does mean that even though you're not the most popular in the room, that you can take hope and confidence that your popularity has nothing to do with his plans. Your popularity has nothing to do with his plans prevailing. So if God is for us, then who can be against us? Will we experience pain? Yes. Will the enemy attack us? Yes. Will people attack us? Yes. Will it hurt? Absolutely. But God will use this pain to continue his purposes. The pain you experience will not prevail over the plans of God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. The evidence that God loves you, his son was raised and defeated death. That God took the sacrifice in his son, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What is this? Evidence that Jesus is interceding for us, that you can trust him. All throughout history, all throughout the Bible, God has always interceded for his people. God has always been an advocate. When there was a Red Sea, even when they didn't trust God, God came in and parted the Red Sea. When Esther was before the king and she's terrified for her people, God came through and did what only God can do. When Joseph was going through all this turmoil, maybe even questioning, where are you, God? Are you with me? What's going on? God came through and did what only God can do. When God saw humanity in desperate need and saw that they were dead in their trespasses, what did God do? God sent his son to die on the cross to die for the sins of humanity so that by placing their faith in him, they shall be justified. You can trust God. 
you can trust God. He is a God who can be trusted. He would not betray you. He would not talk about you. He would not tell your secrets. He would not turn on you. He would not walk out on you. You can trust our God. So I ask you today, what are you not trusting God with? If God gave his only son and did not spare him, then he will give us according to scripture. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I don't mean ask for whatever you want and he's going to give it to you. I just mean you can trust that he is your provider. You can trust that he is your comforter. This is the God you can trust. So in this moment, for those of you that are Christians in this room, what are you not trusting God with? What are you not trusting God with? Man, just say, God, here's the truth. I don't trust you with my child. God, I don't trust you with my future. God, I don't trust you with finances. God, I'm sorry. Here it is. Then there's some of you in this room that have never trusted God as your Lord and Savior. Because you didn't trust he loves you, so you've been hiding. Just like Adam and Eve, you've been hiding because of your sin. And you have not trusted that he loves you. Let me just tell you, you can trust that he loves you. Scripture has proven it. He loves you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to give you the opportunity to respond to that. So Christians, all I want you to do is begin confessing as we sing and as pastors will be up here. Confess where you don't trust them. And for those of you who are in here and have never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, trust him today. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you can be trusted. We can trust you, Father. We can trust you. You won't walk out on us. You love us and you see our sins. And that while we were still sinners, you gave your son for us. And that we were dead in our trespasses, but you were rich in mercy. So, Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.